really felt like I had a skill set for disaster relief that that I really could use on the Gulf Coast. We're in disaster mode there nine months out of the year. I mean, literally, I watch every storm. When Hurricane Michael hit, I was watching the hurricane that hit Portugal, you know. Um, so you're always in disaster mode, weather mode down there. And I thought, gosh, I feel like that's a skill set I'm not really going to be able to use much. And then lo and behold, what happened? Like right after I get here, we're in a disaster with COVID-19 and all those things that I knew, those experiences immediately kicked in. Hey, Kathy, good morning. Good morning. How are you? <laughs> good. Doing this in the morning. It's a little bit different than the afternoon. Can I get, a, <laughs> get all your stuff done early to get ready? Yeah. Well, for those of you that don't know, Kathy Pope, she moved to Memphis in August of 2019 to become the new CEO and president of Memphis Food Bank. And I'm thrilled to have her on our second episode of this podcast. So, Kathy, just so glad that you can make time for me this morning and look forward to having a great conversation. Yes, I'm looking forward to it as well. Thank you for inviting me. You bet. So we'll probably go off in a lot of different uh, topics and lessons and just really good conversation. But just curious, so from what I understood, you came to Memphis in August, like I said, a few seconds ago to, to take over and to lead the Memphis Food Bank. What was it like starting 2020 and having your plans and objectives that you were shooting for for the year or the next few years and then just kind of being totally thrown a curveball with COVID? I think, which I, I know we'll get into this, there's a lot of really great publicity that you have and the organization has on how y'all pivoted very quickly and just added a tremendous amount of value to the city that you're still doing. But I'm just curious, what's that like as a leader, you know, moving to a new city, taking over an established, well-known, large organization, wanting to put your own kind of plans and directions in place, and then totally just something out of the blue, just totally coming up unexpected. Yeah, well, I'm thankful that I had some months to kind of get settled before um, this hit. So I um, started the third week of August and um, just kind of have gotten the staff used to me, probably the board used to me getting to know people, spending time with people, listening, a lot of listening. Um, you know, what has the food bank been doing? Um, what are our strengths? What are our weaknesses? What about the infrastructure in the food bank? Because this is a new facility. They moved in in July, and then I come in August. Um, and so now, because this facility is significantly larger than they had had before as far as warehouse space, um, we can think differently. We can have, we can accept more food items. We um, pretty much don't say no to anything. Uh, we're great partners with the Department of Agriculture. So they send us a lot of product. And now whenever they have any kind of excess at all, we let Nashville know. Um, we can take whatever, you know, ask us, what food do you have? Um, we had already kind of sort of been talking about where I wanted to head as far as getting a Mississippi facility. Um, and, and I knew the importance of that to be able to serve North Mississippi adequately. We were going to need a warehouse space there. So I was already kind of talking with the board about that and letting them know my thoughts. Um, also reaching out more to the agri the local agricultural community to let everybody know who we are and what we do and that we can accept food items. You know, perhaps we, 
obviously can't accept junk that we can't feed anybody. We always look at it like, would I feed my own family this food? And um, that's how we make our decisions of what donations we will accept. Honestly, we had already kind of headed in a direction that we're kind of at right now. We have a warehouse in Mississippi. We have great relationships with farmers. I mean, it just kind of catapulted us to where I knew we could get eventually. Um, But being on the Gulf Coast and having that disaster experience of working through hurricanes down there, because we assisted the whole state of Florida with Irma, uh, one of our counties, Bay County on the Panhandle, um, was hit with Hurricane Michael. So I really feel like it was just a blessing that I have already been through hurricanes and disaster. And this team and I started planning before the middle of March. We knew what was coming. You could, you could hear in the news. You knew um, that we were going to be shut down uh, in some capacity. And the minute Shelby County Schools closed, we we went into action. We already had food orders in the queue. We knew we had to build food boxes. Um, So the team really rallied quickly and put those plans in motion. And we just, it's just blown out of the water with how much food we've gotten in the door and out of the door um, in these eight weeks. Wow. That is amazing. Since you've been here since the third week of August, did you already open up that Mississippi facility? Is that what you said? Well, we just got in there like a week ago. Um, I I knew that I wanted to do that, but I certainly wasn't going to do it this year. Um, You know, this virus, I mean, it's a very sad virus. It's a very sad pandemic, not just because of the health and the people that have suffered and how it's affected people physically, but then also economically. But, you know, acknowledging that and believing it and just grieving with that um, is a reality. But then also just kind of separately from that, because of your previous experience down on the Gulf and because of the virus and then how things had to change so fast and then how quickly y'all's organization pivoted, it sounds like it almost just kind of pushed forward in a faster, like at a faster pace to move in a direction that you wanted to go anyway. So y'all, it just kind of jump-started you. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. It did. Yeah. We, we know the recovery for all of us, for our communities, is going to be a, a long, long-term recovery. I mean, there's no way you could live on the edge financially prior to the virus and have this unemployment, business closings. I mean, it's devastating for our communities. We'll bounce back. We know that. It's just going to take um, some time. And So we knew that we needed to have a facility in North Mississippi if we had any hope of getting the quantity of food out to those communities that we need to. And yeah, so we there's just no way we can distribute that amount of food because we're increased. We've distributed, um, Sam, three times the amount of food that we normally distribute. That is an, an enormous amount of food coming in the warehouse and out of the warehouse. Is that 500 families a day? Oh, more than 500 families. We're, um, we're probably serving, we served 54,000 families just with mobile pantries in April. Oh my goodness. Pantries. That's not counting what our agencies um, are serving at their local brick and mortar pantries, of which we work with 300 in the Mid-South. 
I mean, that's right at 2,000, just under 2,000 just for the mobile pantries a day. Yes, we have mobile pantries where we're serving um, 300 families, 500 families. We've got a couple that we serve 1,000 families. We're running 12, 10 to 12 mobile pantries just on Saturdays. So we, it, we usually just work five days a week, generally. We don't have to go too much in detail, but I think, you know, there's this assumption that government programs, subsidized food, you know, allowances and things like that um, are provided, obviously, in our country and in our community. But from the food bank perspective and from like this perspective and how, like the, how great the need is and how, how great of a need that the Memphis Food Bank is providing, can you talk a little bit about the necessity and the purpose and the value that the food bank does that nobody else can do? Um, yes. So uh, the food banks, of which there are 200 in the country, we're affiliated with Feeding America. Um, we are the only entity that does exactly what we do. So we work through partner agencies, which is going to be your neighborhood food pantry. It may be a, a, a nonprofit like Neighborhood Christian, or, or it may be the church pantry right down the street from you. But we work with 300 of those partner agencies. And so um, before the virus, we would have distributed 1.4 million pounds a month to those agencies, and we would have conducted about 20 mobile pantries a month. So the mobile pantry is just getting that food out to a community that has a great need, that maybe that need is not being met by the brick and mortar pantry. Like they don't have the capacity to serve 300 families. So we will we will go out to a community that has great need to get those 300 families served. But we were doing about 20 a month. So um, our job is to make sure that our partner agencies have the food that they need. So when their families come to their distribution, they have food. Um, so it's a lot of pressure just to make sure you have enough food coming in your warehouse to get it out to all of our 31 counties. So we serve 31 counties in the Mid-South. How many, um, from the square footage perspective, how much, when y'all moved into your new facility last year from the previous facility, how much new square footage did you gain? We doubled it. We went from two different facilities um, that had 80,000 square feet to one facility that we retrofitted an existing warehouse and it has 150,000 square feet. Now we have 60,000 square feet that we haven't finished that we rented out. And in five, seven years, we will probably take that, that over, that space over as well. But we've got room to grow. Wow. So when things started really, when you started to see the news and then you, and I know you're on, you're on daily calls with the city and like crisis response team or whatever the specific name is, like you're, you're very connected, very involved. You're um, a priority in the community. So um, you were very informed, but when that was starting to kind of unfold and y'all were really starting to move and y'all were like really going into action even at a higher and quicker pace than what you were previously operating at. Were you, did you feel comfortable because of your previous experience or was it a mix of emotion between like comfort, but then also some, just some nerves because it was new, like for you personally, what was it like to really to lead and respond and then to serve this effort like so quickly? How, how are you doing through that season? I mean, I really, I'm a pretty calm person anyway. I'm very matter of fact. Um, we've got business to do. Let's do it. Kind of reaction a little bit. Um, I was very thankful for the disaster relief 
um, experience I had on the Gulf Coast because I knew that there were some things that we could tap into through the state, for example. We're partnering with the Tennessee Emergency Management, the Mississippi Emergency Management on a state level. So I'm on those state calls and we petitioned to get food through the um, TEMA and MEMA um, to get that food into the warehouse, which we've been successful doing. I was a little concerned. Even my staff said, ooh, we can tell you're stressed. I was stressed at the beginning because the, the pressure the food bank has to make sure that you have food in the warehouse is tremendous. And I was concerned that we wouldn't have enough food. I mean, we were distributing immediately so quickly. I literally could not sleep thinking we cannot have an empty warehouse. People are going to be looking to us. Our agencies are going to be calling us. People are going to be looking to us to provide food. So I'm like, where is the food? So all of our management meetings were, where are the funds? Where is the food? leave no stone left unturned. And that's what we did. And we tapped into a lot of different avenues to get food in the warehouse. Did y'all tap into restaurants that had already had excess uh, food and produce and things that were not being used? Yes. And we already had started that. We had a program that was in effect probably four months before this hit, uh, Meal Connect. And we had been running that program to where if a restaurant has excess anything, they go on that app and post it. And then we have volunteers trained that have the equipment that can go pick that food up and get it to one of our partner agencies. So we were doing that. We also got food from TEMA and it, that food is still coming in, Tennessee Emergency Management. Um, Feeding America has a portal that we were able to get um, truckloads of food um, from that portal. And then, like I said, we had food orders in the queue before March 12, which we call disaster day one. That was when Shelby County schools shut down because we knew once that happened, there were going to be families that needed us. So how many, like on these early stages, how many hours a day were you working and how many days a week were you working? Were you working six days a week, five days a week? Seven, seven days, days a week. Seven, seven days a week. Yeah. Many, At the very how beginning. Days, how, how many hours a day were you working? Oh my, um, easily 14. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I did a lot at home, too. Not a lot. I mean, I was here probably 12 hours, but we just all kind of made sure we had access to our computer. We have, I'm sure everybody knows how to do this. It was a little new to me, but um, we have a program that we take our laptop home and then you sign in and it's just like you're at work. You've got access to all your files and all the shared drive and all the data that you need. Because we were on daily calls at that point with, I was on daily calls with different folks, Shelby County, uh, which were still on those calls, um, state of Mississippi, state of Tennessee. We needed access to everything. And things were moving so quickly. Like if we had something going on, we had an option on food or somebody needed a question answered. We were all pretty much on call 24 hours a day. Well, I'm going to ask a question and kind of cover a different part of kind of your career and life experience. But when I was doing some research, I saw that you were an engineer for nine years, and then you were a teacher for 11 years. And then it looks like you did real estate development for 11 years. And then after that, that's when you moved into the nonprofit sector as a community health director. And then after that, 
you became the executive director at Meals on Wheels and then CEO of Feeding the Gulf Coast and then CEO of Memphis Food Bank. So I think it's it's just so neat how diverse your life experience has been and the things that you've done. Can you talk a little bit about the different opportunities that you've had, the different jobs that you've had, the things that you loved the most about those? Like, did you realize that at the time? Like, how did things just continue to evolve and progress? Because it sounds like you were just given, you know, a great opportunity to be the community health director in 2012. And then that was kind of the stepping stone to becoming an executive director. But what was it like being an engineer and a teacher and then a real estate developer before being in the nonprofit world? Yeah, well, I um, right out of undergrad many, many years ago, um, I moved to Texas with a couple of girlfriends thinking that, you know, we would just stay the summer. But um, it was the early 80s and the economy was hot and jobs were great. Um, so I got a really great job with Southwestern Bell Telephone and ended up staying there. Um, ended up getting married um, to a Georgia boy. I'm from Georgia. So married a Georgia boy, and we had our first baby in Texas, and then um, he wanted to go to law school. So we actually ended up moving back to Georgia for him to go to law school. So I had to resign from um, Southwestern Bell Telephone, although I did contracting engineering work for Bell South when I moved back to Georgia. And then in the process of um, my ex-husband finishes law school. We end up having four children. Um, that's a lot. Um, and there were most of the time I just did not work full time. I flipped houses. I got into real estate just flipping houses because um, I pretty much stayed home with my children most of the time while they were um, growing up. They're all grown now. And so then when I... Um, my children were old enough that I felt like I could go back full time. That was when I was a teacher at the school they went to. So it was just an easy transition. Um, and that's a great job for moms or dads who are trying to raise children. And, and you know, it fits their schedule. And I liked it a lot. I was really, we felt very much part of that community. I mean, I was in that community for 27 years. So well. Um, really felt part of that community. And then um, I was also on the board of the Fuller Center for Housing. Um, very, very dear to my heart. The organization is, a, it was a local organization in my community that raised money and did minor home repairs for people who could not repair their home. So this might be elderly couple and their roof needs to be replaced. That's that's a that's a tough tough one to do, right? It's it's expensive. What do you do? How do you come up with that money? So I really loved that organization, and we needed. It was a small organization, but we needed someone to do grant writing. And I thought, oh, I could probably do that. So I went to a couple of grant writing courses. One was at Georgia Tech, and so that kind of catapulted that nonprofit to be able to be a bit more successful. So that's when I thought, I really think I want to do nonprofit full time. So I took a job at um, Susan G. Komen Foundation as the community health outreach um, coordinator. And that that just kind of set my pay, my path from there. So what so when you came into that role, it sounds like you had been through those other experiences it kind of drew you to to move into that role as a community health director. 
what did you come in and do? How did you provide value? Because really soon after that, you were then hired as the executive director of Meals on Wheels. So how did you come in and really make a positive impact with that opportunity? Yeah, well, um, I I loved my job at Susan G. Komen Foundation. I was in charge of um, 13 counties right there around middle Georgia. And, and it was a small staff. I mean, it was just the executive director, myself, and, and then I ran the volunteers. And I was in charge of the grant program. So what we did is we raised money and we granted those funds out to the community, into the medical community to make sure that women... Um, who could not afford to get a mammogram, they were provided. So this was a real service to low-income folks in the community. And it was just a great job that got me out in the community, which is different from teaching school. Teaching school, you're in your classroom. Yes, you love your families and you love your children, um, but you're not really out and about. So that was really one thing that I loved was it, it allowed me to get out in the community. And I learned a lot about just my local community and the other counties surrounding um, Bibb County, which was where I was. So I did love that. And the um, board member at Meals on Wheels, he was my banker when I flipped houses previously. And um, he's the one that broached me when they were having their um, executive director at Meals on Wheels was retiring. And he asked me to pursue that position. And so that was the only reason I left Susan G. Komen. And it was a, um, you know, it was a better position for me, obviously. So that's why I went to Meals on Wheels. I'd like to know what kind of advice you would give, let's say a male or female, maybe in their late 20s or 30s or maybe even 40s. And let's say because of COVID, they got laid off or maybe they got laid off before COVID or even maybe they have the job right now, like listening to this podcast, even through COVID, but they're not quite sure if that's what they want to be doing for the next 10 years. So they don't know. They're trying to figure it out. Like maybe just putting the, the financial aspect of it aside where we all need to provide, we all need to, you know, pay our mortgage, pay food, tuition, et cetera, whatever that looks like. How would you challenge or encourage someone to think through the things that they've done thus far in life, how to maintain optimism, and then how to maybe try to look or think about the ways that they, that they what they really enjoy doing and where they really feel like they provide value to really try to be, you know, purposeful for the future to really try to find something that they might enjoy more than what they're doing currently. What kind of advice would you give to somebody like that? Yeah, I, um, it's kind of the same thing I tell my children. You know, if you're going to get up and go to work every day, and I have to work every day, I'm not one of those that built this, your 401, and I've been very stable in my work as far as constantly had a job. Like my sister is retiring. She's only two years older than me. And she's worked at the same company for 33 years. I'm like, wow, that's amazing. But that is not my story. And that's okay. But I just tell people and my children, like I said, particularly, you want to be happy with what your work is. You want it to provide um, meaning in your life and you want it to be purposeful. So um, what is it that you like? Like, I love my job. I love that we're feeding people. I think we're making a huge impact. I love this warehouse so much. I love coming to work and I love the work that I do. And so I, when I talk to people about that, what is it that you love? 
What, what makes you get up every day? And it may be just a volunteer opportunity that you have. Maybe you can't do that full time. Maybe you do have to go to another work um, place because you have bills to pay. Um, make the best out of it, but then have a plan. Where do you want to go? Even if you're 50, even if you're 60, where do you want to go? So I look at it like I have to work um, probably 20 more years. I want to work as long as I'm healthy. You know, I look at some people that Ruth Boehner Ginsburg on the Supreme Court, I think she's like 88, for goodness sakes, and she's yeah. going to work. You know, those kind. I admire those people that are working that long because that's probably going to be me. <laughs> but what makes you happy? What makes you get out of bed? And if, and if that means you've got to take an online course or you need another degree um, or you might need to volunteer at that place for a while while you're working your regular job. But Sam, three years is going to pass, whether you're in school or pursuing something else, or you have a plan. Three years is going to pass no matter what you do. Five years is going to pass no matter what you do. So where do you want to be in three years? Where do you want to be in five years? What is that going to take? And set that path, make that plan. How are you going to get there? I will tell you when um, I did go through a divorce in 09, didn't want it, but, you know, things work out the way they work out. And, and we all are doing very, very well. I have four grown children, all doing fantastic. We're all very close. In fact, they all came to visit me in Memphis for Mother's Day, which was, oh wow. yeah, that's a, such that's, a treat. Yeah, it was fantastic. And I appreciate that they make that effort because they're kind of all over, but um, we're all over. Well, two of them just got home from Japan. So two of the boys had been in Japan for um, a year teaching English Okay. and, you know, got a little bit nervous about the virus and I wanted them home. I just, and their, their contract was up and they had to make a decision, renew or come home. And we got one of them home literally the night before. If you remember when Chicago airport was just such a nightmare Right. He got home 24 hours before that, the last one. But um, so, but now they're living in in Georgia, just trying to figure out what their next step is. Both of them college degree. One of them is in college. He went back a little bit later, and he's in Alabama. And then my youngest is a girl, and she's in vet school at University of Georgia in Athens. Okay, so Alabama, Georgia, and then the other two boys are in Georgia. They're in Georgia. Yes. So they all came up from Georgia and Alabama to see. Yes. I just think, yes. you know, like, I think it's easy to not either. Honestly, I'm just being very candid. It's easy to not care about doing things like that, I think. And then you, over time, you realize how selfish you are. And then I think that also speaks to just the way your kids, how they value you and they love you. Cause, you know, those are the things that where you're going to do, you know, whatever you can do to, to make sure your mom knows how much you care about her. And I just think it's, it's like a, I mean, it's just a very clear and good example of what you do. Like, you know, when you really love your family and, or, you know, when you really want to be there. And I just think that's really great. So that's why I asked the question about where they came from. Yeah, we're, I'm very blessed. They're, they all make the effort. Um, I make the effort. I, it's, it's, not unusual for me to take a long weekend and go over to Athens and we play golf and we, you know, play 
racquetball and we have one of our favorite restaurant in Athens that we love to go to. You know, we, we all like to play golf together. So we have things that we like to do. And they know that I make the effort. I made the effort with my parents. Both of them are deceased now. But um, I think investing in people, your family and your friends is just one of the biggest gifts that you can give them. So I do invest in people. I invest my time in people for sure. Um, and I'm so thankful that my children um, will do the same thing for me. So yeah, yeah, that's really special. So you've talked about an interest. And to me, it sounds like you just have a purpose. Like there's an underlying purpose, the way that you view your work and how you view just serving organizations, leading them, making things happen, but like the the bigger purpose to providing food to the community. And now it's larger than just the Memphis community. So when you go for it, when you're making the plan, like the way we're talking about advice you would give to somebody in their 20s, 30s or 40s or whatever age, what's your attitude like when things, when not everything goes well, or there's a few hiccups, or there's kind of a, a bad, you know, just kind of a bad, not a like a, a lasting failure, but just initial like setback, et cetera. How do you maintain energy, persistence, a good attitude, you know, when setbacks happen? What does that look like for you? Like leading in your personal life and then also leading like with the Mid-South Food Bank, et cetera. How have you learned that throughout your career? Yeah, throughout my career and my life. Um, yeah, things don't always go the way you want. Um, you can't make people do things, right? You're only responsible for you, your actions. You can encourage, you can be there for people, you can offer advice, certainly training. I make sure that all of my staff, what training do you need to excel in your job? You know, you have to provide people the the, the tools and the um, the the way that I need you to perform, I'm going to give you all the tools you need to do that. Right. So, so I definitely look at it that way. I always, I just learned early on, you know, life is tough. That's what I think. I do think life is tough. And I tell my children that life is hard. Things are going to happen that aren't perfect. They don't work out exactly the way you want them to, but things always get better. And I'm a woman of faith. So I do know um, that I have a purpose and I have a path. And as long as I am as wise as I can be, um, I'm going to be doing exactly what God's plan is for me. Um, I have amazing girlfriends. There's the four of us are just tight as can be. And again, we live all over, one's in California, but I invest in that group. They are my core girlfriends that I've had for 30 years. So I think investing time in people, um, setting really, getting really encouraging, wise people around you is very important. That that friend and family network is what is what you're going to need when the bottom falls out. And the bottom's going to fall out at at some point. Um, I lost both of my parents two years ago, a week apart. I thought that was the hardest thing I was ever going to go through. And it just about killed my siblings and I. But um, life goes on and you move forward and whatever is going on in your life, you're not going to stay there. You're just not. You've got to get the strength to get out of that hole and um, pursue what you want to pursue. And again, as long as you've got family and friends that are surrounding you, they're going to catch you no matter what happens. And, and I've been caught several times in my life from, from that network. So um, that's what I tell people. It's never 
it's never the end. The days are always better ahead. So encouraging. I am also a person of faith. And I think, you know, even being a Christian for several years, I've just noticed in myself and even my perspective, like you can still kind of be a glass half empty kind of person, or you can still focus on the bad more than the good. And I think there's a health. What you shared encouraged me because it's healthy to call things as they are, as you see them, you know, challenges, setbacks, adversity, everybody goes through different levels of suffering. It's, I think it's really healthy and liberating to kind of call it what it is, but then to also be surrounded by people that are going to shoot you straight always, but you trust them and they're safe. And so they're going to encourage you, but then they're also going to speak to you, you know, when you need to be spoken into. But then it's like, there's this whole other like psychological aspect of it to where just the way your brain is, or when you're, when you're taking on new opportunities, or when you're trying to move into like a different new direction, like with a new job or like purpose, like the way that we talked about, there can just be this mental struggle of just kind of the discomfort of putting yourself out there and stuff like that. And I think living in that tension on a daily basis, it's necessary because that's how you're growing. But I, I just think it's so interesting how it plays out because of like the way that you said it with your faith. And I w- would agree like how I perceive my faith as well. Like life is going to get better. It's not going to look exactly how I want it to be because there's greater powers at work, in my opinion, that I can't control. But to really have faith, I mean, to, to really practice like being grateful and to really think about the good. And even from just a business context, I mean, if you do 10 shipments of 10 widgets, you know, you might have two that have an issue. And then hopefully over time, maybe it's just one. And then hopefully over time, maybe it's just like one every two weeks or whatever, but to like, to just maintain optimism and positivity to keep solving the problems, but keep moving in a direction. And I think I know you have your MBA and I know you got your undergrad in mathematics and then you have your master's in political science and government. I just think it's really neat. I'd love to hear you talk about it a little bit. You seem like a very kind of systematic thinker or like a very, you know, organized, like process oriented person. But yet, you know, you've led, you've taken over three organizations as executive director, CEO. How do you use the logical side of the gifts that you have, but then also inspire the people that you work with or from a, like more of an emotional context of like creating harmony, you know, motivating people, developing people, et cetera. How have you seen that play out in your career? Um, well, like I said, I think it's very important to listen. So when you come in a new organization or, or you come in, you're the new person, um, you want to take time to listen to the staff and learn the business and, and, you know, learn as much as you can about what they do. I don't have to be able to do every detail of their job, but I do want to hear from them. So I always take time to spend one-on-one time with everybody. Um, so I meet everybody, um, right down to the drivers, the warehouse workers, the custodial staff, whomever. So I make time to make sure that I get to know them somewhat, learn about their job, Um, I always ask what, you know, what do you like uh, about your job? And the sweetest thing is when you're at a food bank um, or Meals on Wheels, anything to do with, you know, that meeting that basic need for people. There's just something about that. It takes a, um, the people here love that. Every single person that I talked to when I first got here said, I love the work that we do here. They love their work. And, um, So I do that. I want to make sure I'm listening. And then I want to make sure that the person in that job is fit for that job. You know, everybody's not in the exact job they need to be in. 
Um, so I really look at that and I talk about where you want to go and how you see yourself fitting into the organization. I make sure everybody has the tools they need, uh, the training that they need, and um, I encourage them to do some of that on their own. Like if you want to learn Word, you want to learn Excel, you want to you know, do whatever, we make sure that, that we help move them along with that. I think it's important to communicate. I learned early on when I would have a, like my board would would have a survey of how I've done or something with my staff. The problem with communication would come up sometimes. Like, I don't think she communicates very well. And I'm like, man, I think I'm great at communicating. But maybe that is something that I'm weak. So that over the years, that has really helped me do a better job communicating. So, you know, I have those weekly meetings with my um, C-suite and we're constantly talking and organizing and, and setting goals and making sure we're on the same page. So I think I've gotten really better at communicating. A lot of questions, things just banging in my head because there's so much. I feel like we could talk for three hours, but we won't do that. So you talk about, you know, your C-suite meetings every week. Are they the same time every same day, same time every week? Yes. And then how long are they for? One hour. Okay. So y'all talk about how you can grow. Like, do you tie those meetings into like monthly or quarterly goals? Yes. How do you evaluate the traction or the progress that was made on those goals on a monthly or quarterly basis? What does that look? How have you learned to do that from just as being a CEO? Well, I'm very quantitative. I like data. I like numbers. I think they tell a story because it's not the kind of sort of, right? What do you think? Well, I mean, it is what it is. Is the number 50 or is it 100? You know, what? I, 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 I'm a math person. I'm finance. Um, so I like quantitative data. So we set goals of distribution. How many pounds need to go into each one of our counties? How are we going to get there? How many mobile pantries might we need to do to push us over that goal? Of course, we already had that goal of setting the Mississippi office up, the warehouse up. We talk about um, how we can help our agencies. So we look very deeply at what is the capacity of our agencies. And we've got some agencies that, you know, they're run by two 80-year-olds. They want to serve the 50 families they're serving, and that's all they can do, and that's fine. But of the agencies that can do more, we look at how can we help them build their capacity. Uh, We set fundraising goals. We set one of the new goals that we had is we wanted a signature event. We probably will not, that probably won't happen this fall, but that would have been another goal that we set. So we're constantly looking at where are we, where do we want to be, what's the timeline, and how are we going to get there? So what does it look like when you set a goal and when you'll hit it? And let's just say you're going to double your warehouse space. So then you need to get enough food. So talk to enough farmers, talk to all the different relationships and contacts to fill the warehouse. Does what this look like on a monthly or weekly basis is you just kind of facilitate with the team and break like a a goal, a, a challenge, an objective down in very incremental steps and that you're facilitating conversation with the team, what needs to be done. And then you're delegating those assignments and then you're using data on the back end to see if it was successful. Is that an example? Yeah, that's a very good example. Yeah. For example, specifically at a food bank, 
Feeding America, we work, you work very closely with Feeding America. I mean, they don't own us. We're affiliated with them. We're our own 501c3. We have our own budget. They have nothing to do with that, but they're big supporters. So of the 31 counties we have the responsibility for, so that's 12 in West Tennessee, 18 in North Mississippi, and Crittenden across the river in Arkansas. And they run all, they crunch all the numbers and they look at poverty, unemployment, food insecurity. They look at a lot of data and they tell us how many pounds of food we need to put in, in each one of our counties in a year's time for so over a 12 month period. And they do it on a rolling quarter basis um, for us to meet half the need in that county. The reason we only have to meet half the need is a lot of other people, Sam, are feeding that have nothing to do with the food bank or feeding America. They're just out there feeding. Um, So we know what those numbers are. I mean, they're very specific. We know exactly how many food insecure people are in each one of our counties because of the data Feeding America gives us. So if you meet that need, you get a green. And if you do not meet that need, you're in red. And as a um, our agreement with Feeding America, we agree we're going to make all of our counties green. Um, and we're not there. And we weren't there when I got here. And um, so that was my main focus, because in order to be compliant with Feeding America, you need all green. So we were already focusing on that and had made a little bit of, of headway um, just in the few months that I had gotten here. And we had kind of regrouped on how to make it happen. And then then the virus hit. So we haven't really even talked about red or green yet. We'll, you know, we have not come up for air, to be honest with you, since we've been just... When do you think you'll talk about red, like from previous experience dealing with something like this? And I think this is like really helpful to anybody with anything they're they're dealing with or going through. Like you totally got sidetracked, but yet you're going to pick it back up. Yeah. You're going to deal with what you have to deal with now, but then you're going to pick it back up. When do you think you'll at least pick up the conversation again? And how and how will you create alignment and momentum on like continuing the goal? Yeah, I think probably we need a, a, another couple of months to just kind of get our footing. The need, even though now we're talking about, oh, well, people are going to start going back to work and businesses are going to be open. We're all very hesitant to do that, concerned that we're going to have a, a spike in, in COVID-19 um, cases, obviously. But if you've missed one or two months worth of work, you're not going to recover next month, right? You've got, that's going to be a good six, nine months for you to even get back on your feet. So we know our work um, is going to continue pretty heavily for the next, we're looking at the next 60 days and then we're going to look at what our numbers look like. Um, but yes, we'll get back to that. But but coincidentally, um, during all of this, um, and uh, we're happy about it, we've distributed so much food into our counties. We're probably green in some of them, <laughs> red in, just because we've put three times the amount of food in these counties. So that probably has helped us. I'd, we'll have to have a maintenance plan, obviously, to maintain it. Um, But that's just one example of um, goals that we've set and what we want to do. We do, um, I like to do studies with my C-suite team. So we'll all read a book together and um, just talk about developing 
um, ourselves as professionals, as, as leaders, and then helping develop our team. So that plays a large part in our, in our time together as well. How long do you give them to read the book? Well, we use, it depends on what the book is. We usually read like a chapter. Um, it'll take us a while to get through a book. It'll take us a good two months to get through a book. Um, but it, it helps just, just the whole leadership. And you don't know when you come into a new organization, you don't know what level everybody's on, right? You don't know really how much training have they received, how many experiences have they been through. And you know, HR is so important for every organization. You have to just do everything perfect with HR to make sure you're not in trouble. So that's some of the work that we do together is just learning together, improving together as a team. And um, I'm a bit of a bookworm, a little bit of a nerd. And I think you can learn a lot from books. I mean, why recreate the wheel, right? Somebody else has already written a book on whatever. I like to learn from others. So that that is also a large part of our time together. Yeah. Or like this podcast, I mean, or any podcast, like an interview yeah. to where you're learning through somebody's life experience and you're going in into it with the mindset of like, what can I learn? What can I think about? And I think far too often we'll, we'll just like not read books or not listen to something because we're like, you know, it's like almost we're just, you know, being closed minded or like we're like, I may not agree with all this, but I mean, there's it's just really encouraging and beneficial when you start to just really absorb as much as you can. Yeah, Absolutely. So what can like just the regular Memphian or the, the, the regular person that lives in the Mid-South, what could we do more of to help you, to help our community, to help the Mid-South Food Bank? What does that look like? Well, I've been, um, I mean, my heart has just been so softened by the, and so warmed by the outpouring of support and love for this food bank. Um, one thing that I didn't know was that this food bank is highly respected in the community. You know, before I got here, I, I knew that people love this food bank. It's been around a long time. Most people probably know what we do, maybe not to the extent, but, you know, they've heard of us. And so that really made it nice, right? I wasn't fighting some uphill battle on anything. We had a great reputation and we had great community support. And the fact that we've got some larger companies, the, the IPs and the AutoZone and FedEx, you know, that's helpful to be in a community that already has great financial support from the um, corporate world. And then the private donors and the community foundation. This is just a very giving community. People here seem to recognize the need and they're so happy to be part of the solution. So that has been great. I mean, that obviously makes my job 10 times easier, right? I don't have to pump anything up. I, people already know us. Um, so that's been nice. It's not difficult to raise money or get people on board. I mean, they raised like $13.9 to get us in this building, which has been instrumental in the way we've been able to respond to COVID-19. So that that has been such a blessing. It's made my job so much easier. I think recognizing what can you do to help feed people? Is it donate $20 a month or don't, you know, donate one time or volunteer? Um, of course, we don't have volunteers in the warehouse right now, 
I think one thing we did very, that was very smart from the get go is I kind of emptied the warehouse out. Like no volunteers can come in. I've got 30% of the staff working from home. I worked really, really hard to make sure we had masks and gloves. That was quite the challenge at the very beginning. Right. Uh, up with all of that protective gear. Um, but, and the custodial staff has just done an amazing job. The place is spotless. They're constantly disinfecting. I gave the frontline workers, I call it disaster pay just because, you know, they have to come to work every day and do a really hard job. So we've been able to keep the warehouse clean, which has been instrumental, but we have volunteer opportunities offsite that there's more room to spread out and we can do social distancing. So we've done that. But honestly, until we get back to whatever our new normal is, and because we have no food drives going on right now, which we really kind of depend on that food um, throughout the year, it really at this point, Sam, is just give financially whatever you can to ensure that we can continue to order food for a while because we are going to see this need in our community as high as it is. I think that's going to remain that way for the next six months. Great. I mean, there's so many things that you shared about what it took and, you know, what it takes to get through it. And I mean, I just I mean, so many different things that I feel like we could talk about, but like just one in particular just sounds like such great leadership on your end, you know, doing disaster pay for the people coming in and working and just, you know, really, I don't know. It sounds like you're just able to really navigate this and go through this and, you know, obviously experience emotions and working 14 hours a day, but then also having a lot of clarity as well on, on about what to do to kind of to get through it in the best way possible. Well, thank you. We take a great responsibility to get food out to the community, whether it is in a mobile pantry or to our partner agencies. And we know so many people depend on us to do that job the very best that we can do. Um, and that's a lot of responsibility. I mean, there's, uh, again, we have 300 agencies looking at us saying, where's the food, right? We, we have to feed our, our community. And we, we take that responsibility very seriously. Last question I have, just curious, when you interviewed for this role, what was that like understanding what the board was like, what they we're looking for in some sort of a general direction. And then also thinking about your personal skill set, your personal experience and how, and your own personal opinion about how it could be taken to the next level. Like, how are you thinking about like going through that season, going through the interviews, speaking your opinion, um, listening and trying to assess the environment, et cetera. Like, how did that play out? Well, Sam, it was very difficult to begin with because I was very happy on the Gulf Coast. I mean, I literally lived on the bay. The bay was my backyard. Wow. Um, I was 20 minutes from Dolphin Island. I loved the area that I served. Um, I had a great staff. We had come through Hurricane Michael with flying colors, had worked so hard and worked well together. And I had built a really good team and we worked well together. And and my kids loved to visit, um, by the way. They loved the bay and loved being at the beach. And I just never even dreamed I would leave. I was so happy. But my name got thrown in the hat up here by another food banker. And um, just in, in them talking to me, now, you can look at any nonprofit 990 and tell a lot about them. And so I really felt like our organizations were so close. I wasn't sure this was a step up. 
And, you know, why would you leave for a lateral? I mean, I got to pack my house again and move and start all over with friends and, ugh, you know, didn't say good to me, but they kind of talked to me about what they were hoping for the organization moving forward and asked me to make a trip up here to look at the new warehouse. And honestly, that's what, that's what did it. I mean, my warehouse in Mobile was 40,000 square feet. This is 150,000 square feet. It's, it's just a work of art, honestly. And you can tell I'm a food banker. We're crazy about our warehouses. It's like, um, the warehouse is just everything. So I saw the potential to be able to, because of the warehouse space, to take this food bank to the next level. And um, I love Memphis. I mean, I had visited here, friends here. Um, it was it was just one of those decisions. You know, of course, I had to give it great thought. And what does it look like? I really felt like I had a skill set for disaster relief that that I really could use on the Gulf Coast. We're in disaster mode there nine months out of the year. I mean, literally, I watch every storm. When Hurricane Michael hit, I was watching the hurricane that hit Portugal, you know. Um, So you're always in disaster mode, weather mode down there. And I thought, gosh, I feel like that's a skill set I'm not really going to be able to use much. And then lo and behold, what happened? Like right after I get here, we're in a disaster with COVID-19 and all those things that I knew, those experiences immediately kicked in. And um, that's always the blessing, isn't it? You didn't, you didn't know what, that what you had learned or what you had experienced would come back to benefit you. And that was just another beautiful um, uh, way for me to verify, yep. I made the right decision. I'm exactly where I need to be. I'm doing exactly what I need to be doing. And we're making a huge impact on the community. And honestly, Sam, I don't know how you could ask for more than that. (laughs) Oh, that is great. Yeah. It's like you start to see, like, you know, you can go through seasons or you can experience things and you're like, why am I going through this? Or, you know, what good can this produce? But then you know, over a period of time, you can look back and they're just signs and it's just affirmation. It's encouraging. Sometimes it can just hit you, you know, in the middle of an afternoon or something like that. And there's just, you know, there's no other feeling like it. That is, that is so great. Well, it sounds so exciting. It sounds like this is such a sad virus in the way that it's affected people. It's affected people's health. I know we've lost people. It's affected the world. It's affected, you know, trade, it's affected the economy, but you know, you and the Mid-South Food Bank have been able to just roll up your sleeves and to just jump right in and just serve even more people. And I even think to a sign the way that you were talking about, like you've started to hit some of those areas that were in red and in the green just by just keeping up with the virus and and just kind of moving along. So it sounds like the Mid-South Food Bank is just moving in such a great direction. I know you've already said that at some point when things get back to more normalcy, y'all are going to just keep moving things along. So we're so fortunate to have you here in Memphis and so thankful that you you made time this morning. And I just hope there's a lot of people out in the Memphis community that can just learn from your life experience, learn from your career, learn from how you handle things. And I just, I've had a great time talking to you this morning. Thank you so much. It's been an honor to spend this time with you, Sam. I really appreciate it. You bet, Kathy. Thank you. Everybody, thanks for listening. If you like this episode, please make sure and leave a review or send me a note. Also, please tune in next week for a new episode. You can follow me on Twitter at Sam P. Coates. 
or find me on Facebook for the next episode release as well. Hope you have a great day.